Good morning. My name is Nick Allen, and I'm the family and children's pastor here at Rolling Hills. And it's really a privilege to get to be in the spot today um, to come and to open up God's Word as we continue our study on Old Testament kings. Um, this series, we uh, have been journeying through Israel's royalty. Um, we've talked about Solomon and the United Kingdom, um, followed by his sons, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and the chasm that now existed between Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And as a divided kingdom, they were much less strong. And as a divided kingdom, they were far more susceptible to invasion, but then also temptation because they had gone the route that God um, had prescribed that they not go. Um, Last week, we looked at King Asa, and there's a diagram that'll pop up for us that kind of lets us know where we are in the king's lineage. Now, Asa was a king of Judah, and the thing that marked Asa's reign is that he was good. Um, Have no fear, we're back to the bad kings this week. You'll enjoy that. Um, As we talk about King Ahab. Now, if we're looking at the timeline, what we see is Asa, who reigned 41 years in Judah, while Israel had incredible turnover during that time. During the reign of Asa, uh, uh, Israel saw six different kings come into office. And not just six different kings, but also four different family dynasties. And so today we land on this guy named King Ahab, who is noted by scripture as being a terrible king. So during the 38th year of Asa's office, Ahab um, was now king. He was the son of Omri. And there's a couple facts that I did want you to know about Ahab as we start this morning. Little little nuggets, little factoids. There are 104 characters, 140 characters or less. We'll call them tweets about Ahab. Um, Um, And so here we go. Uh, This is going to paint a general landscape, just a little portrait of who Ahab was. This is our king of the week. What if I'd accidentally said flavor of the week? (laughs) That would have been a whole different message. Okay. Um, Ahab's dad, Omri, was also a terrible king. That's fact number one. The Bible says about him, Omri did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did more evil than all who were before him. So any king that came before Omri, which there weren't that many in line, but every single one of them who had done bad things, Omri was worse. That was a character trait. So there's fact number one. Number two, Ahab was the son of Omri and the second of four kings in what is known as the Omri dynasty, which was the fourth dynasty of nine total to lead Israel in the divided kingdom. Um, Incidentally, the 80s primetime soap named dynasty lasted nine seasons. Coincidence? I don't think so. Okay. Um, Ahab was married to a lady named Jezebel. She was the daughter of the high priest of the Sidonians. She was a worshiper of Baal, and she incited Ahab to do the same. Uh, Number four, Ahab uh, built temples to Baal and also erected an Asherah pole. Now, Asherah was a Canaanite goddess who was married to El, who was the high Canaanite creator god. Okay. Um, Ahab also, uh, during his reign, Jericho, the city of Jericho, you know, the walls came tumbling down that one. That one was rebuilt, which incited a curse that was spoken by Joshua in chapter six, verses 26 of that book, that the person who rebuilt Jericho would have a curse on him and his family and would lose his children. That's a big deal. According to first Kings chapter 20, verse five, Ahab had wives, plural, Yikes. Okay, and also uh, according to second Kings 10, he had at least 70 sons. Y'all, that's just the boys. That's a lot of kids. Seven, 70, 70, that's a lot. Um, today, as a culture, we're semi-fascinated with the Duggar family, and they've stopped at 19. I mean, 70? That's a lot of children. Now, commentators of the Bible will have us to believe that that's not just sons, but it also includes grandsons. But still, that's a lot of boys. We have two girls and one boy, and one boy's enough. That's a lot of energy. I don't even... I don't know where to go from here. 
Like, seriously, I don't know where to go from here. Seven, okay, I know where to go from here. Spiritual leadership. That's a really good connection point, right? Spiritual leadership. Because that's where we land today in the lineage of the kings and the idea of what you and I are called to do as a part of this. Um, You see, we will never be royals. That's a song, by the way. It don't run in our blood. Okay, so um, I'll never be the king of England, neither will you, um, or the queen, as the case may be. And so I'm not pursuing some throne on a, on a, over, over a kingdom, overlooking all of my people and having people salute or whatever it is you do when the king, like, stand to attend. I don't know, whatever you do. Like, those people in England that can't, like, smile or whatever, maybe none of you would smile when I came. To, like, you know that they have the high hats and they're not, you try to make them laugh, but they don't. Like, that's a whole word. I'm not trying to be a king of anything, but I do have opportunities for leadership and also influence. And so you and I gravitating towards this whole idea of what it must have been like to be a king of Israel. It's not that God is calling us to be royalty over a kingdom. But he's calling us to be royalty within his kingdom. And it's different. The kings of Israel weren't just to lead the people politically and like militarily. Um, They were supposed to be God's headpiece. Um, What represented the divine nature of God and his really benevolent blessings to the people that were his subjects. You see, to honor the king was supposed to be to honor God, unless your king, like in this case, was really dishonorable. Spiritual leadership means moving others towards God's agenda. Moving others towards God's agenda. And sadly, especially when talking about the northern kingdom of Israel, that was really never the case. They only could boast in evil kings. And on the outset, there's something that we really need to know about that word evil and that word wicked and what it really means. Evil loves darkness. In fact, the Bible, where we'll start today, you don't have to go there because it's in the New Testament and clearly we're spending all of our times camped out in the Old. But in, in John chapter 3, right after that famous verse where God tells us that he so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, it goes on to say, this then is the judgment. Now, judgment is really never a good word, but in some cases it really means something awesome. The light, that's Jesus, has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who practices wicked things hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. This is a pretty good characterization of Ahab. And I hope it's a really rotten characterization of us, because we want desperately to be people of the light. If we're going to be spiritual leaders, we have to do what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 2. We have to walk as Jesus walked. King Ahab, however, walked in darkness. We'll spend our time with him there today, camping out predominantly in 1 Kings chapter 21. And so if you have your Bibles with you and you want to open those up with me, you can go to 1 Kings 21, noting that the entire Ahab story really chronicles 1 Kings 16 all the way through 22. Um, And then even in part of 2 Kings, we encounter Ahab's family and his legacy and the problems that he caused for Israel. You see, King Ahab walked in darkness. The Bible tells us that a few times. And I've learned that anytime the Bible repeats itself, it must be important. In 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30, it says, But Ahab, son of Omri, did what was evil in the Lord's sight more than all who were before him. Now you'll know that about Omri, the Bible said that he did evil more than anybody that was before him. So if Omri was the most wicked king, and then Ahab came along, and he did more evil than the people who came before him, which would have included Omri, because that's how biology works, the father comes before the son, then all of a sudden you recognize that Ahab was even more wicked than Omri, making Ahab the most wicked king that Israel had ever seen. It goes on in verse 32 to say basically the same thing. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, of all the kings of Israel who were before him. So he uh, did more evil in the Lord's sight 
and he made God matter than all the other kings that came before him. See, one of the running threads throughout all of the Bible narrative, particularly in the Old Testament, indicating darkness in people's lives is the worship of false gods. It's idolatry. We see it with sorcerers back in Egypt. We see it with golden calves at the base of Mount Sinai when Israel was incited to worship things that weren't real. We see it with these crazy orgies in Canaan and all throughout the lands that Israel inhabited. And even throughout the New Testament in Rome and in Greece, we see these practices of idol worship all throughout the ministry of Paul. Idolatry was rampant throughout scripture and it was a clear indicator that someone did not truly know God. And it was a life marked by syncretism. See, syncretism is taking all of the local religions and blending them all together in this smoothie uh, of practice. And that's what Israel was guilty of doing time and time again. They never claimed to reject God. They just wanted to blend God with all of the other local religions that they encountered. And that was sin. Because there's this thing about God. He doesn't share well. That's a strong statement. I just said the God of the universe doesn't share well. If someone at home's internet connection just went down and they heard me say that, they don't understand the point of this message. And that's probably a bad thing. See, God shares a lot. And we thank him for his many blessings. And we teach our kids how to share because we think that it's a biblical virtue. But when it comes to a place of prominence and authority in our lives, that's when God doesn't share well. Because he has no intention of sharing his throne in this world or his throne in our hearts with any other God. In fact, to share would be an admission of his own limitation to where he needed another God to somehow make up for what he himself did not provide. And to admit any sort of limitation for God would be false humility because God is completely limitless. There is nothing that we lack from the God of this universe. And to exhibit a false humility would be a lie. And God can't tell a lie because God himself is truth. And so we know that this is a slippery slope where idolatry is putting anything on the throne with God or in place of God our lives. And that's what he was categorically against because he's God and no one deserves that place in our lives, but him. And before anyone tunes me out with the word idolatry and thinks, well, that doesn't apply to us because we don't have a Buddha statue in our bedroom. Hold on. Because much like that Buddha statue, idolatry comes in a lot of shapes and a lot of sizes. And it infiltrates our lives in ways that we can't imagine or often suspect. That's why we need spiritual leadership. People in our lives to hold us accountable and influence us, to prompt us towards God's agenda in our lives, to move us in the direction that God would have us to go according to scripture. It's through the Ahab narrative that we're reminded of the importance of choosing godly influencers. You see, Ahab had a father who was ungodly. A lot of people here, we probably have parents who are ungodly who didn't teach us about Christ or who may be worse taught us about Christ but then didn't follow him themselves and there were patterns uh, of lies and even abuse and just pain in our lives that have infiltrated who we are today and caused us to become the people who we are today and and you and I can't necessarily be responsible from the influencers that we come from but we can be responsible for the influencers we choose today. See, Ahab didn't do that because he took idolatry as his wife. It says in 1 Kings 21, 25, and 26, still there was no one like Ahab who devoted himself to do what was evil in the Lord's sight because his wife Jezebel incited him. He committed the most detestable acts by going after idols as the Amorites had, whom the Lord had dispossessed before the Israelites. He chose idolatry 
and an idolatrous woman as his wife. Ahab's marriage to Jezebel was largely a political one. You see, she was the the daughter of the priest king of the Sidonians. And in order to maintain peace on their borders, Israel needed an alliance with the seafaring Phoenicians who were right next door on the water. And so the Sidonians entered in the picture. And so as the daughter of the high priest king becoming the wife of Israelites king, they had an unbreakable alliance. Her name probably means, where is my prince Baal? She was raised by her father, steeped in idol worship of Baal, and she was a woman of great conviction and unwavering devotion to the wrong things. You see, she loved Baal and hated Yahweh. She was determined, so determined, to make Baal worship the religion in all of Israel, just like it was in Canaanite practice, that she hunted and killed all of God's prophets and replaced them with 850 of her own She had seen firsthand the power and the majesty and the miracle of God, but rejected that truth in favor of her own idol worship. She had unbelievable faith, but it was in the wrong thing. And she incited Ahab to do the same. The whole deal with Jezebel and Baal isn't as much of a foreign concept to us as we might think. Baal worship involved incense and involved sacrifice. Sometimes that sacrifice was human. Since the main function of Baal was fertility, It was a big attraction point for Israel because every father wanted a son and every wife wanted to provide it. But it wasn't just fertility of the womb, it was fertility of the land. And they would enter into these wild worship practices to ask Baal to bless the land, to make it fruitful so that it would multiply and so that it would yield a crop. It's not a big leap to go from fertility to prosperity. And for us, it's not a big leap today to go from prosperity to materialism. We can make a lot of things idols in our lives. When Israel wandered away from God, it was often toward Baal. Fertility and prosperity were paramount to their existence, and they wanted it. And Canaanite religion said, this is how you get it. Honor Baal. Not only did Ahab embrace uh, and take idolatry as his wife and way of life, he consistently rejected wisdom. Wisdom from godly people. One of my favorite Ahab narratives comes in chapter 21 of 1 Kings. You likely have it on your Bibles now. Verses will appear on the screen. This is a story about Ahab and a fellow who was his neighbor named Naboth. It says, Some time passed after these events, Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, and it was in Jezreel next to the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. You see, Ahab set up palaces and houses for himself all over the place. Well, this was his house in Jezreel. And Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard so I can have it for a vegetable garden. Well, that's admirable. Vegetables are good for you. Okay, since it is right here next to my palace, I will give you a better vineyard in its place, or if you prefer, I will give you its value in silver. He just wanted to make a land purchase or a trade. You see, land back then was as much of a commodity as it was currency, and it was often used to change hands to buy and sell goods and to make business dealings. So land was an important commodity, and this is what they were trading. It was oftentimes used, especially if the king was the one making the offer. You rarely said no. In this case, Naboth said to Ahab, verse 3, I will never, never is a strong word, give my father's inheritance to you. So Ahab went to his palace, resentful and angry because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had told him. He had said, I will not give you my father's inheritance. He lay down on his bed, turned his face away, and didn't eat any food. Translation, he pouted. 
Then his wife Jezebel came to him and said to him, why are you so upset that you refuse to eat? Friends, sometimes I wish I was so upset that I refuse to eat. Okay, verse six. Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite, he replied, I told him, give me your vineyard for silver, or if you wish, I will give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I won't give you my vineyard. Now we know that's not true because Naboth did not say, I won't give you my vineyard. Naboth said, I won't give you my father's inheritance. You see, the Israelites were commanded when God divided up all of the property in the book of Joshua, when the 12 tribes took the promised land, not to ever give up their stake in God's promise. And so Naboth isn't just being selfish with his land. He isn't just being disobedient to the king. He's saying, I'm not going to dishonor God just because you tell me to, king. This land is my inheritance from my father. This land is my tribal ancestral right given to me by God. And God said, don't give it up. So then... Verse 7, his wife, Ahab's wife Jezebel, said to him, Now exercise your royal power over Israel. Get up, eat some food, and be happy, for I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. She sent the letters to the elders and nobles who lived with Naboth in his city. In the letters she wrote, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. Then seat two wicked men opposite him and have them testify against him, saying, You have cursed God and king, then take him out and stone him to death. The men of his city, the elders and the nobles who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had commanded them, as was written in the letter she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. Then two wicked men came in and sat opposite him. Then the wicked men testified against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has cursed God and king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. They needed these two witnesses because Old Testament law prescribed that if someone's going to be accused of something, especially something this grave to warrant death, they had to be accused in the side of two witnesses. You needed two people. They didn't have forensic evidence, so they just needed two guys to agree. In this case, two liars. In verse 15, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned to death, she said to Ahab, get up and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, who refused to give it to you for silver, since Naboth isn't alive but dead. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. See, I believe that Ahab knew as soon as Naboth called it his inheritance, that it was a violation of God's law to pass it down. But he didn't care. He wanted it anyway. He didn't care about biblical authority. He didn't care about God's wisdom. He just wanted what he wanted. See, sin hates light. Sin hates accountability. It loves darkness. Elijah was the prophet that was most associated with Ahab in the story. You see a lot of encounters with Elijah. And in 1 Kings 21, 20, Ahab said to Elijah, so you have caught me, my enemy. I don't think I would say to the prophet of the Lord, his mouthpiece who represented God, Yahweh, you're my enemy. But Ahab did because he hated godly wisdom and he hated God's messenger. Elijah replied, I've caught you because you devoted yourself to do what is evil in the Lord's sight. Now, the rest of the story is that Elijah gives Ahab a prophecy that's doom for him and his household. And Ahab, in verse 27, when he heard these words, he tore his clothes, put sackcloth over his body, and fasted. He lay down in sackcloth and walked around subdued. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? I will not bring the disaster during his lifetime because he has humbled himself before me. I will bring the disaster on his house during his son's lifetime. So Ahab's getting a reprieve because he felt guilty for his actions. To tear your clothes in the Bible and put on sackcloth was an illustration of repentance and remorse. I was going to tear my clothes this morning as an example to you guys of what that would look like, but I haven't fasted in a long time. Plus, 
I just have to get new clothes and not be unfortunate. So Ahab tore his clothes and fasted as a sign of the fact that he was sorry for what he had done. And God was going to take that apology because God is merciful and God is good. And although Ahab was a sinner, God was willing to forgive him. Too bad that didn't last. Too bad it wasn't evidence of real and lasting life change. If it had only indicated a heart that was truly and completely dedicated and devoted eternally to God. There was another prophet by the name of Micaiah. He's lesser known. Ahab hated that guy too. In a future encounter with Judah's king Jehoshaphat, that's the guy that came after Asa, Ahab sought wisdom from one of God's prophets because Jehoshaphat said, hey, isn't there a prophet of Yahweh that you can ask this tough question to? And so in 1 Kings 22, 8, the king of Israel, that's Ahab, said to Jehoshaphat, there is still one man who can ask Yahweh, but I hate him because he never prophesies good about me, but only disaster. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. Darkness hates light. Idolatry hates accountability. Who in your life can hold you accountable? Who can prompt you and move you towards God's agenda in your life? Who can dive deep into the way that you live and the things that you do and think and feel and say and schedule and help hold you fast to the commitment that you've made to honor God with your life? You see, I'm... There's... An unending amount of opportunity for us to be idolatrous in this life. And I'm convinced that we do a pretty good job at staying away from most of those. But the enemy's kind of sneaky. I think often the idols which you and I struggle with the most, the ones that tend to work the best when it comes to keeping us in the dark and preventing us from honoring God fully, those are things that are far less obvious. At the risk of being stoned following our fellowship today, just make sure you take me outside the city because that's what's required according to the Bible. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that in our Christian subculture that we live in today, we idolize sports. And I don't want to be gender biased, so I'm just going to go ahead and lump um, things like dance and gymnastics and cheer right up there with soccer and baseball. You only have to turn on the television in the morning when you're working out at the YMCA to figure out that Collegiate and professional sports is riddled with unbelievable immorality. I'm not talking about those. I'm just talking about youth rec. Any youth recreation for that matter. See, I have a pretty wild imagination. You're excited about what's coming next. And I have this picture in my head, extra biblical. It's not going to be in a book of the Bible. It's just this thought that 30, maybe 40 years ago, the enemy, the evil one, was in a board meeting. Because maybe they have those, I don't know. And surrounded by his top demons, I couldn't think of another word for demons, I don't really like it, but I'll use it anyway. So he's surrounded by these demon guys and and all tasked with coming up with what the next thing that was going to deter God's people from loving him fully and distract them from being a committed part of his church. And so this old demon, uh, an old timer spoke up and said, it's the Asherah pole. We need to get every Christian in America to put an Asherah pole in their front yard and start worshiping it all over again. And the enemy was like, you know, we've been there, done that. Run the numbers and get back to me. Some other demons spoke up with some other ideas of what they thought might work in our popular culture to distract Christians from honoring God fully. And this one young guy, a new guy, a new demon spoke up really softly and said, What about Little League? 
What, why don't, okay, here's, here's the plan. Okay, what if we can get parents to overschedule their kids so much and prioritize a game over family Bible study and church participation? What if we can help families begin to celebrate something that's good so much that it actually keeps them from what is best? What if we can slowly but surely turn up the heat and create weekend tournaments and competition so fierce that it requires practice four, five, six, seven days a week? It's a long-term investment, but I think that we can get parents as young as second, third, fourth, and fifth grade to schedule their kids so much and to commit to it so much. They'll be so busy and so focused on an extracurricular activity that they won't have time in their lives to love God well. As a bonus, kids and their scheduling, it could be something that we use to drive a wedge between moms and dads so that husband and wives don't communicate because they're so busy slapping their kids all over town that they can't have date nights and that they can't have good communication and they get into arguments over what's best for the family because... We're reshaping an entire generation of families who have dads who call themselves Christians. Who would never let their kid miss a practice or a game. While evangelical church attendance and participation wanes in this country to a comfortable 50%. And the demons voted. And it passed. And we're a product of families who've forsaken the fellowship of Christ and the accountability of other believers because their kid made a team. It makes me really uncomfortable to say that. But I fear far more a culture where we have replaced taking up your cross and living sacrificially for Christ and looking different than every other family in our community, where we have traded that for an easy Christianity that says, follow God when it's convenient and when it fits your schedule. I think that somehow or another we've adopted the identity of allowing idolatry to re-enter our homes, not in the form of Baal worship, but in the form of busy schedules. Darkness hates light and sin hates accountability. If me talking about overscheduled kids makes someone uncomfortable, then perhaps it's because that's an area of life where we need to seek godly influence again. If we're not careful to heed godly wisdom, we will allow even good, innocent elements of our culture to earn a seat of idolatry in our lives. And what we need is godly influence to help us avoid that. And we need to be able to heed godly wisdom in order to receive it. It, it, It's not just about having a godly influence, which Ahab needed, but he rejected It's also about being a godly influence. Ahab's name literally means uncle. It's father of the brother. And if you look at his father, Amri, he was definitely a brother to him because they were both really evil. But there is other evidence, even outside his repentance in 1 Kings 21, that he followed God. There is evidence to support that. His kids with Hebrew names, this is what they mean. We're not going to do all 70. Wow, that would take a long time. Jehoram means Yahweh is high. Ahaziah, who we'll later talk about as the next king, means Yahweh has taken hold. Athaliah means that's his daughter who would eventually become the only queen to sit on the throne of Judah. Athaliah means Yahweh is exalted. I wish someone could dig up Jehoram and Ahaziah, like dig up their body, like an archaeologist or something, dig up their bodies and go and find out that those guys were circumcised because that meant that they were part of the covenant and had been committed to follow God with their lives, but... They didn't live like it. 
So Ahab named his sons and daughters names like Yahweh is high and exalted, yet lived every single part of his life worshiping false idols. And here's the takeaway for us. Our faith is much more evidenced by what we do than by what we say. It doesn't matter what you name your kids. It's what you raise them to be. It doesn't matter what we call ourselves. It's how we live our lives. According to Pew Forum research about churches, 78% of the people in America call themselves Christians. Abraham Lincoln once responded to a critic by saying, how many legs does a cow have? And the critic responded, four. And Abraham Lincoln says, suppose you call the tail a leg. Now how many legs does it have? And the critic responded, five. And Abraham Lincoln says, no, just because you call the tail a leg doesn't make it a leg. Naming your daughter Yahweh is exalted doesn't mean that she's going to exalt Yahweh. Naming your son Yahweh is high doesn't mean that God will be pleased, especially when neither you nor that son live a life that authenticates those words. One of the problems that we've created in American subculture in our landscape of Christianity is that we have come up with an entire generation of 12-year-olds who repeated some words and called themselves Christians and believed in God, but never were taught what it meant to sacrificially follow the God that they believed in. And the result is a nation of people who call themselves Christians but do not follow Christ. And that's an oxymoron because a Christian follows Christ. It's a nation steeped in a false security blanket of religion but doomed because they have no relationship with Jesus. You can say that Yahweh is high and exalted on Sunday, but if the rest of your life is scheduled by idolatry, then God is neither in you nor impressed by you. 1 Kings 22 Verse 51, it says, Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Judah's king Jehoshaphat, and he reigned over Israel two years. He did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He walked in the way of his father, in the way of his mother, and in the way of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who had caused Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him like father, like son. He provoked the Lord God of Israel just as his father had done. You cannot be a godly influence without having a godly influence. Who's yours? Your character is developed by the company that you keep, and it is ultimately described by the legacy that you leave. Who influences you towards God's agenda? And who do you influence to be on God's agenda? These are my marbles. I just found them. No. Um... There's 936 marbles in this jar. One for every week of my children's lives between birth and when they turn 18, 19 years old and leave my house. One for every week. That could be one for every spiritual conversation that we have about what it means to follow Christ in a world where it's sometimes hard to follow Christ. That could also mean one for every single Sunday that we have where they're living under my care and I'm promoting the value of Christian fellowship so that they won't be like the 80% of kids who are raised in Christian churches and Christian homes and then leave those doors never to darken them again. This is a very important legacy and it's a really good reminder. If this were actually representative of my almost eight-year-old, there would only be 499 marbles in this jar because that's how many weeks I have left with her. If it was representing my, my second daughter, who is six, almost seven, there would be 551 marbles in this jar. And my little boy, Simon, who is two, I still get 821 marbles with him. And I pray every day that God would help me to take advantage of every single one of these moments to raise kids who not only know Jesus, but follow him. Who know and recognize God as the one and only true God. And who follow him with every single part of their lives. It's 
It's phenomenal to be a part of a church that values that. Because my wife and I recognize that we are the primary spiritual developers of our children. That's why God gave them to us. But we're not the only spiritual developers of them. It takes a village. It it takes an entire community of godly influences to to affect our lives, but then also to help us affect theirs. Because one day they're going to need not just Susan as a godly woman to show them how to be a a, a Christ-like girl. They're going to need lots of you too. And we pray that you'll be the godly influences that they need in those moments of their lives when they need somebody else to talk to besides their mom about something big and important. And we pray that God would continue to surround them with godly influence, but also that they would receive that godly influence and not reject it. It's the prayer that we pray for all of our kids at Rolling Hills. It's the prayer that we pray for you. It's up to us to cultivate those kind of relationships so that we can have godly influence and so that we can also be a godly influence. Ahab, like other kings in Israel, had unbelievable power. He just didn't do anything good with it. He was wicked like his dad. He was wicked like his wife. And his sons were wicked like him. He did not receive or listen to the godly wisdom that the prophet spoke. And he certainly wasn't a godly influence on others. Influence is unbelievably important. We may not have royalty, but we all have influence. And God has called us to be a people who exercise that to move others towards his agenda for their lives. And I pray that we would be a church that does that well for God's glory and for future generations. Father, you are so good. And Father, we are unbelievably overwhelmed to be loved by you and to be forgiven by you and also overwhelmed by the fact that we get to be used by you. Father, my prayer for us as we continue through this King series is that we would learn ultimately what it means to be wholly devoted to you. God, you've given us some great examples in Scripture of people that weren't that. And we can learn a great deal from them. Father, give us the accountability in our lives to remove the idols from our schedules And from our hearts that need to be displaced. So that we have an increasing amount of room for your prominence in our lives. We don't want to put you first, God. We want to put you only. But we need your spirit and your son to help us do that. So make that possible in each of our hearts and in each of our homes, God. May we put you first. In Jesus' name we pray this prayer. Amen.